parents on this Father's Day, and let me thank our dads especially on this day that you've chosen to be a part of a worship service to focus with us on the Lord. I'm grateful that you're willing to do that. Now, if you're a guest with us, maybe for Father's Day or uh, as a result of our Vacation Bible School this last week, we're in the midst of a summer series that I've entitled, uh, I, or We Have Questions. And the focus of the series is to address different questions that uh, many of you raised through the month of May. We invited you to submit questions and and what I'm now attempting to do is to address as many of those questions as possible. And so today I'm going to actually just uh, refer to several questions just in passing because you raised them. And then we'll focus in on one primary question that I think is especially relevant. Now, one of the questions was a very practical one. It, goes, it reads this way, what is a good way to prioritize needs in seeking out a church between the opportunity for service being in community, being spiritually fed, how do we choose to, uh, what to put first as it seems almost impossible to find a church that does all of that well? Now, probably this was a question that one of our guests has submitted, and I'm grateful that you were willing to submit the question. I, I would inform you, again, we, I've said throughout, we want to go to what the Bible says to find our answers, and I think in Galatians, 819, it says you're to join the North Fort Worth Baptist Church. <laughs> now, you should know there's not a, a Galatians chapter 8, so it's not, a, now, I made that up. <laughs> Seriously, you're not going to find in the Bible a verse that directs you to a specific church. And the questions that you raised or that were raised, I think, are, are reasonable questions. What I would recommend that you do, however, is this. As you pray about where God would have you to attend and to participate, that you ask the Lord to lead you. That's the beautiful thing about being a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he commits himself to lead us to, to know how we are to respond to these situations. There is a verse in the Bible that encourages us in that way. James chapter 1 and verse 5 says, if, if you lack wisdom, let that person ask of God. I go ahead and put that up on the screen. James 1, 5, is it going to come up? Maybe not. Then let me read it for us. James 1, 5 reads, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Now that's a promise that has far-reaching implications, but I think it's relevant as you're praying about where you should attend a church. I think you ask God that question. Because God sees who you are, and he sees where you're going, and he knows the congregations, and he knows you. And if, if you'll allow him to lead you accordingly, then you'll connect with the congregation that he desires for you. And so just ask him, and I believe by the influence of his spirit upon your heart, he'll give you a peace about where you should attend. And so that would be uh, an approach to address that question. Now, a similar question was raised by another person. What if a husband and wife disagree on what church to go to? That's a good question. Now, my initial response there is you need to find a place of worship, a congregation, where both of you can feel positive about participating. I don't think it's a wise thing 
to separate where a husband and a wife attend services, I think you want to find a place that that allows the Lord to work in both of your hearts. And as many churches as there are in the Metroplex, I'm confident that you'll find that place if you allow the Lord to lead. Now, that said, as it's Father's Day, can I just speak to our dads and specifically to husbands, if I may, just to encourage you at this point. You should realize that it's God's desire for you to provide a a role of spiritual leadership in the home. God expects that of us as we would seek to follow his wisdom in our own lives. And I say that not based on just a a whim. The Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus, and he was trying to emphasize within the home how God expects and desires godly men to assume a role of leadership within that setting. Now, just listen to how Paul describes it. Are we going to be able to see that, Steve, or we're... Okay, this is Ephesians chapter 5. I'm reading verses 22 and following. The apostle writes, Wives, submit submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Now, can I say, as I've read this passage to us today, there would be many outside this church that would say that I don't really like what you just read there. It's not particularly a popular idea. And yet what you need to appreciate what's being described here is the creator's wisdom and how the family, how the home can function. And he directs those that are husbands to assume a responsibility before the Lord to relate to his wife and to his family in a leadership way, in, a, in the role of leader. Now, that isn't to imply that the husband is superior to the wife. This is not a passage about inferiority or superiority. This is rather the wisdom of God trying to provide a model, a guide to know how do we relate to each other in the context of of a marriage and the home. And as you read through the Bible, you'll quickly recognize that the instruction we have is that God would ask the husband not to assume a dictatorial role, but a leadership role within within the home. And to do so, did you hear the language of it? Sacrificially, lovingly. That the husband isn't just thinking to himself, what do I want? And my wife has to go along with it. Instead, it's more of a a pursuit on the part of the husband. God, what do you want? And how can I lead our family to do what you would have us to do? So my appeal to our husbands and fathers today is you need to relate to your spouse in a way that honors God in a loving, caring way. But ultimately, you need to provide some leadership in the home 
so that God can work through you to bring your family to the place where, where you would have, he would have you to be. Now, that said, when it comes to deciding on a church, again, I think you are praying for God to bring to your heart a clear understanding of how you can find a congregation where both of you will be strengthened and edified. You don't just say, I'm going to put my foot down, I'm going to go where I want to go. No. You seek to relate to your spouse with understanding and wisdom and love, and you're looking for that setting in God's way that would be right for both of you. Now, having read this passage, let me go on to say this doesn't preclude a a woman rising to the position of president. This isn't addressing uh, positions of authority and culture. It's simply describing how in the home, the creator had a wisdom for how uh, the home would function. So I have no misgivings about women rising to the position of CEO or president or whatever the role might be. Uh, But when it comes to how should we function within the family? Well, the Bible's not silent on that. It speaks to that. And let me, since I'm touching on this, go a step further, because someone did ask a question with regard to uh, the role of women in leadership within the church. And here was the question. How can we incorporate women's roles of leadership within our church? And are we willing to do that? Well, if you know our congregation at all, you know that we recognize that both men and women are gifted towards service and are given the opportunity to serve freely within our congregation. We have women who serve as chair people of our various committees. We have women who lead out in our small groups. And so we don't approach the ministry of our church from the vantage point that only men can serve the body of Christ. No, that's not how we approach it. There is, however, in Scripture, an emphasis that does seem to emphasize that there's certain roles or offices that are reserved to those that would be husbands or men. Those offices are pastor and, and those that would serve as deacon. If you go to 1 Timothy chapter 3 or Titus chapter 1, the Apostle Paul describes this in a simple way. He refers to those who would serve as pastors or overseers in a masculine sense, and it's pretty precise in its language. You say, well, that doesn't seem fair. Well, realize what Paul is trying to point us to is simply this. What's modeled in the home is then mirrored in the church. That when it comes to a pastoral role or a deacon role, scripturally speaking, that it just seems to mirror what was emphasized as the wisdom of God in terms of how the the family itself would function. I know someone said, well, that's easy for you to say. You're a man. I would say in 2019, no, it's not easy for me to say. I mean, the more popular way to go would be say, hey, it doesn't really matter. Let's just kind of embrace what society would promote as the new norm. I'm convinced that the Bible has been given given to us as a source of revelation and that there's a wisdom in that. Now, you can condemn me for accepting that or embracing that, but that's what we're trying to do, as honestly as we know how, is to follow the the leadership of God through the testimony of his word and how it relates to life. Which brings us all the way back to the original question. If, If a husband and a wife are disagreeing on where they are worshiping, 
Again, as many churches as there are in Fort Worth, I'm confident that if you'll ask the Lord together, and as husbands, as you'll ask the Lord especially to give you a, a wisdom that would strengthen your home, I have no doubt that you're going to find the right, right congregation. And if it leads you away from the North Fort Worth Baptist Church, you need to be where God wants you to be. That's not complicated, is it? Well, those are some passing questions. Let me direct your attention, however, to a primary question. Now, I'm not saying that the earlier questions are unimportant, but the question I want us to consider now has eternal ramifications. So it, it's a little bit elevated in terms of its importance. And the question, as it was worded, it was like this. Why do we believe in the eternal security of the believer? I have to smile at the question. It, presume, it presumes that we do. Uh, there are a lot of people that maybe would say, I don't believe that once you experience salvation that you're forever saved. There are even Christian denominations that would emphasize that that's not necessarily true. And yet, the question is posed, given some background probably of what is the Baptist heritage, where Baptists throughout the centuries have insisted that once saved, you know the rest of the phrase? Always saved. So why do we then believe in that? Why do we believe in the eternal security of a believer? If I may, let me reword the question ever so slightly, and maybe it will help us as we would evaluate a biblical answer. Can a believer in Jesus lose his or her salvation? I mean, that's the heart of the question, isn't it? Can I potentially lose my salvation in Jesus Christ? Is that possible? Now, as you would entertain that question, let me raise one more that maybe will even cause us to focus more closely on really what's at stake here. Consider this. When you talk about salvation, who saves who? Now, what I mean by salvation, just in case you're not sure that's a churchy term, what I'm referring to in terms of salvation is this. The Bible teaches that we are guilty for our sin, that we're condemned because of our sin, and that we're subject to the judgment of God. Salvation is to be rescued from that. That God provides a way for a person to have their sins forgiven and then informs that person that they will enter into eternity with him. That's the picture of salvation. You are saved from your guilt and you're ushered into eternal life. So, if that's the language of salvation in Scripture, and it is, let me ask you again, then who saves who? See, there are a lot of world religions in our day that would say that you save yourself. We referred to Islam just a couple of weeks ago. In the Muslim tradition, you basically save yourself by Fulfilling certain religious expectations. You have to do these things in order to save yourself. Even in Mormonism, and some people are confused and thinking that that's another branch of Christianity. No, it's not. They have their own religious books, and what they emphasize is that in essence, you have to do certain things, not simply to save yourself, but to become a god 
in their theology. So I, I think it's a fair question to pose. Well, from our perspective, who saves who? Do you save yourself? Or are you rescued by God? Which is it? Now, maybe one of the most well-known verses in all of the New Testament gives us a clear picture of what the answer to that question is. It's John 3.16. You know the verse, don't you? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. If you look at that verse, Jesus is the one talking. He's emphasizing that it's God who rescues us. That God acted in sending his son Jesus to die so that if you respond to who Jesus is, you believe in him, trust in him, what results is Jesus says you will not perish. In other words, you're not going to be judged for your sin. You're rescued from that. And even more, he says, this is Jesus speaking, you now have in your possession something eternal. You have eternal life. Now, just as an aside, if you have something eternal, is there then a possibility that it would cease to be? The very nature of something being eternal is once you have it in possession that it then extends for the rest of time. And Jesus says, if you believe in him, in me, he's the one speaking, I'm going to give you something that touches eternity. I'm going to give you eternal life. So who saves who? God saves us through Jesus. His son is how Jesus would explain it. Or let me give you another passage. Not too long ago as a church family, we read through the Gospel of John. And it's a wonderful gospel to emphasize for us how a person experiences salvation. And in John chapter 10, Jesus is again teaching. He's trying to explain things. Listen to what he says and see if it doesn't further help us understand this whole picture of salvation. Jesus says in John 10 verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he, notice this, he will be saved. In other words, if you enter through me, something happens to you. You are saved. You're rescued from the judgment that you rightfully deserve because of your sin. You're saved from that. And not only that, he says, and that person now will go in and out and find pasture. That once a person enters into life through Jesus, then Jesus begins to provide for them a new quality of life. Jesus adds in verse 10, For the thief comes to steal and to kill and to destroy, but I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Look at those two verses and you tell me, now who is the key to this in these verses? Is it you or is it Jesus? Who's the door? It's Jesus. Who's the one that provides the means of salvation and life? It's Jesus. And so as Jesus is the one trying to point us to experience salvation, he's not confused about who saves who, is he? 
He is the key. He carries this on in verse 11. He changes the the language slightly. Now he describes himself as the good shepherd. See, you find life in him, and now he's going to assume a shepherd role over you. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd, Jesus says. I know my own and my own know me. Pay attention to that language. This is the language of relationship. See, when we believe in Jesus, we have now entered into relationship with him and he with us. He knows us. We know him just as the father knows me. And I know the Father, and notice, I lay down my life for the sheep. In a beautiful way, Jesus explains to us the length that he was willing to go to save us. So, who saves who? Well, the Bible would seem to say God saves us through Jesus, his Son. But let me change the... Add another question just to help us further develop our answer. Consider this. Now, given what we've read, can someone then undo what Jesus did? Because you see, if you're going to suggest that a person can now lose their salvation, lose the effect of what Jesus did on their behalf, then in essence, you're claiming that you have the ability to undo what he did. That's an interesting consideration. So it's within my power to undo what Jesus did for me so that in a way my power is greater than his power? Somehow that doesn't seem to be the right way to think about it. Indeed, later in this same passage, after Jesus describes himself as the shepherd, listen to what he says in verses 27 and following. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. Once more, the focus is on relationship. See, when we believe in Jesus, we're not just believing in a general idea. We're actually coming to know Jesus by faith. And he knows us. We know him by his spirit. We hear his voice through his word. We follow his lead. And Jesus adds that, and they follow me. See, because of this relationship, they follow in the way that Jesus would have them to go. I've said on many occasions, when you read the gospel of John, you'll notice that believe and follow and know are all interchangeable. Those who believe in Jesus follow Jesus. Those who follow Jesus believe in him. See, you don't separate the ideas. It's one and the same idea. If you know him, and he knows you, generally speaking, you follow him. That doesn't imply that you're going to do that perfectly. No one in this room has done so perfectly. But it does suggest that the direction of your life will be following in the direction that he's going. And so Jesus states it that way. But then he adds, verse 28, And speaking of those that know him and he knows them, I give them what? Eternal life. And they will never perish. Does it sound like Jesus has any doubt about that? He doesn't say, now they will never perish unless they do something that undoes what I did. No, 
are. He says, those who know me, follow me, and as they relate to me, then I give them something that's eternal, which is life, and they will never perish. That's Jesus' statement. And he gives us a, a picture of it. No one will snatch them out of my hand. See, he takes it personal. He's the good shepherd, see. He's not going to run. He's there. No one will snatch them out of my hand. And if that's not a strong enough emphasis, Jesus expands on it. My father who's given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. So, can someone undo what he did? To suggest that you can lose your salvation is then to claim that you can basically undo what Jesus achieved for you, gave to you as a gift. I'm of the conviction that you can't. Indeed, what you have in your salvation wasn't earned to start with and it would not be sustained after the fact, it's what you receive. The Apostle Paul describes it this way in Ephesians 2, 8 and through 10. For by grace, Paul says, you have been saved through faith. It's see your response to Jesus. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not, notice, a result of works so that no one may boast. For... We, speaking of those who've responded in faith, are his workmanship, meaning now God has taken responsibility, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So from the Apostle Paul's perspective, once you come into this faith experience with Jesus, you've received a gift that is secure. And God assumes responsibility to continue to work on you so that you follow through with what God has placed within you. And so in my mind, this is what I would say to us. When Jesus saves, he saves. End of story. If I have responded to Jesus by faith and he has delivered me from the judgment of sin, my heart should soar because I am now assured that he saved me now and forever. That it is not within me the, the ability or power to then undo that. One other testimony of his sufficiency, John 6 and verse 40, Jesus is speaking, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And then Jesus goes on record, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus sounds confident about his work of salvation. Well, I know the, the skeptic is still going to say, but hold on, what about those individuals who turn away? I mean, what about that person who at some point seemed to believe in Jesus, but they don't seem to be believing in him now. They don't follow him now. What about them? Did they lose their salvation? See, Jesus himself on a couple occasions said that it's the one who endures who will be saved. 
But see, you misread Jesus' words there to imply that now it rests on you to save yourself. No, what Jesus is stating is the obvious. Those who truly know him endure. For those that are just casual in their reaction or response to Jesus, they don't know him, then they won't follow him or endure. Now, that may trouble us, but it's the truth the Apostle John, in his little epistle of 1 John, was describing some that had abandoned the church. See, persecution began to really intensify toward the end of John's life. He himself was exiled. And see, he saw people under persecution that were turning away. And he writes to 1 John to explain some of that. Listen to what the Apostle says. I'm reading from 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. That sounds rather straightforward, doesn't it? That it doesn't, just because you attended church as a child or a young person or even a, an adult and, and showed yourself religious for a season of time, John says it's possible, you, it look at them, and you would thought, well, maybe they are genuine believers, but John would say at the end of it all, you'll begin to detect whether a person's faith is truly genuine by whether or not they continue to follow the shepherd. Once more, I'm not implying by that that there isn't the possibility that a genuine believer on occasion will wander away. They do. I've met them. I know them. That is a possibility. But John is helping us to realize there, sadly, are far too many occasions where a person will just kind of outwardly show themselves and claim to be a Christian, but inwardly there's no reality to their faith. They haven't trusted in him. And eventually, they do just seemingly abandon their faith. Now, the fair question to ask, okay, did they have salvation and lost it? No. Those that Jesus saves, he saves. But those that have just been loosely associated with Jesus? No. Time will reveal the genuineness of their faith. Jesus is the one that says, you're going to know them by their fruit, ultimately, you're going to be able to see the influence of the shepherd or not over a long span of time. You know, so those who know Jesus generally will continue to follow him, not perfectly, but follow him all the same. Some might refer to that as the perseverance of the saints. I would actually refer to that as the perseverance of the Lord. Because I'm confident, not in my ability to continue to follow on because of who I am, but because I'm his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, so he's the one that's going to work in me. A couple of other quick passages, Philippians 1.6, Paul is writing to believers, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Whose assumed responsibility? God has. And then the Apostle Paul, his final letter, as he writes to Timothy, he's in prison, people have abandoned him. You would think he would be a little discouraged. Listen to what he writes. First, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 and following, Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. Apparently some 
were acting as if they didn't want to be associated with Paul. But share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher an apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But then he adds, but I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. And I'm convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. That's that last verse that appeals to us. Paul says, listen, I know whom, not what, whom I have believed. And I'm confident that what he has entrusted is going to come about. Because you see, it's not you that save yourself. It's Jesus that saves You say, well, pastor, if it's so clear, why do these other denominations teach that you can lose it? I think that's a great question. Why do they? Because the Bible clearly emphasizes that salvation is the work of God. Can I suggest to you maybe some reasoning behind that? If I want to motivate you to be more faithful to service, more diligent in church attendance, more committed to the cause that is the church's cause. Would it motivate you to whisper in your ear, now if you don't do it, you're going to lose your salvation? See, they're trying to motivate out of fear. That's awful to me. You know what I would rather you do? I want you to be faithful too. I want you to be diligent too. I I want you to participate in the work of of the Lord with the church too. But I want you to do it out of a deep sense of gratitude. Not fear. Knowing that he saved me eternally in spite of my imperfections and flaws should motivate me to follow him, to honor him, to love him. Now, again, if that sounds too harsh in assessing why some denominations do what they do, I'm just saying, if you allow Jesus to teach us about salvation, it's clear he's the one who saves. And I'm grateful that he does. Final thought. If you have a family member that's wandered away, maybe now my message has made you a little uncomfortable. I mean, what... What does that mean for my family member that once was a faith, but they don't seem to be attending now? What does that mean? I I can't answer that for you. It's possible they could have suffered hurt and disappointment in a way that's caused them for a season to step back. I can't look into the heart. I would say the longer the period of time where they have abandoned what seemed to be the reality of their faith should raise a a level of concern. I'm not going to lie to you about that. I think that 
according to Scripture, would cause you to say, well, what's going on? We say, well, then how do I relate to them? On Father's Day, dads, what I would say, first of all, you love them. First and foremost, you interact with them in loving ways, caring ways, seeking to, to be the dad or the mother, the family member that, that reveals the love of Christ in that relationship. You love them. Secondly, you, you, you pray for them. You ask God to draw them to a, either a, a first point of realization of faith or a renewed understanding. You just pray for them. And as you're praying for them, here's the key. You just ask the Lord to prompt you to know when you should talk about their journey. See, I don't think you approach that test just kind of superficially where you're just constantly talking at them because eventually they're going to just cover their ears and say, you know, I'm tired of hearing that. I think you, you pray for them lovingly, praying for God to encourage and to work within their lives, but you're asking the Lord now, you prompt me to know when to speak and what to say and how to interact with them to either bring them to take a fresh look at where their journey is or perhaps introduce them to the faith that is so profoundly affecting your life. And you stay with that day in and day out. If you raise them in the church, the good news is some deep seeds have been planted. I'm confident of that. And you're going to allow the Lord to work through you to bring them to, to maybe take a fresh look at what and where they are. Can a person lose his or her salvation if they believed in Jesus? As I look at what the testimony of Scripture says, I think it says no, they can't. Because when Jesus saves, he saves. Next Sunday, we're going to look at the question, what happens after person dies? That was the question raised, which are very relevant. This morning, early this morning, I received two texts from two of our church families where they've suffered the loss of their loved one. Um, Beverly Rieger went home to be with the Lord this morning. Um, also, Brad Connor went home to be with the Lord. Very relevant question. What happens when a person dies? Come back next week. Let's look at that together. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray, first of all, that for those who have trusted in your Son as Savior, that you would encourage them about that, that they would recognize that they have received the most extraordinary gift, the gift of salvation and life, which is eternal. Now, Father, as we've come to see that in fresh ways, I pray it will inspire gratitude that we want to follow Jesus, to honor Jesus, to allow Jesus to be more and more a part of our life. We want that. We seek that. But Father, for the person here today that, as I've described these things, that would have to admit they've never trusted in Jesus. They don't know that they've responded to him. I pray even now that you'll appeal to the heart that they would know, even as Jesus said, whoever believes in him will not perish. Help them now to believe, to respond, to ask Jesus to be their Savior. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.